Welcome everybody to Bike Talk. It's so wonderful to have Rachel Aldred here. And let me just read her bio, uh, just the little version because it's long and she's been at this for a while. So Rachel is the professor of transport at the University of Westminster and director of the Active Travel Academy. She also teaches on Westminster's MSC Transport Planning and Management. Her site, rachelaldred.org, is meant to bring together my, her various academic research and policy interests. And these days she is putting quite a bit of stuff instead on the Active Travel Academy website. That came from something that I kind of pulled off the web. So Rachel can correct me if that's wrong. But also I wanted to say, Rachel and I met on Twitter and she's fantastic there. So anybody who's listening to this who doesn't already follow her on Twitter, she is the source. She is a resource and she is wonderful and engaging. So welcome to Bike Talk, Rachel. Thanks, Andrea. Great to be here. So you have done incredible work and there's lots of research. And again, I, I point people to your websites, which I'll include in the show notes. Incredible stuff and really interesting. But I'm, I don't want to go into details because I'm not the wonky person that maybe, you know, academic audiences used to working with. But I, from my really kind of broad climate influence background, would love to hear your perspective on where the UK started, kind of when you first got into your work and where it is now. And then we'll get into some other topics? Sure. So I've been, as you alluded to, I've been working in the field for a little while now. It's um, looking back, it was 2008 that I first did my um, first kind of cycling research project. So it's been a little while. And 2008, coincidentally, was when the um, UK's previous cycle infrastructure design guidance was published. And it was kind of notorious for having a picture on the front of, you know, a tooled up guy in a, you know, in a bus lane being overtaken by an HGV and really looking like the kind of cycling environment that most people would not like to be in. And that was the cover of our cycle infrastructure design guidance. And really that kind of, you know, it epitomised everything that was sort of wrong about our approach and who we were building for. And, you know, last year it was actually replaced by new cycle infrastructure design guidance that is much more inclusive and has been the result of a lot of people um, over a number of years sort of working together, advocate, policymakers, practitioners, academics and so on. So working together to say, well, we shouldn't be planning for the cycling that currently exists currently exists in what is a really quite hostile scary environment we should be planning for the kind of cycling we want to have which would be much more diverse and much much many many more people would have the opportunity to cycle so yeah that's over 12 years basically and you know we have an awful long way to go and certainly behind a lot of other um, countries in Europe and in the rest of the world but I think having that guidance down that now says you know we are building we have to think about uh, cycling inclusivity we have to think about disabled cyclists we have to think about women and children you know we're not just building for um you know a 30 year old guy in lycra you know those people are important too but you know we're building for a range of people so that for me is quite it's quite an important change of course you know cycling in most parts of the uk um it's still a pretty hostile and unpleasant experience unfortunately although we have seen some changes we do have some good examples and i think there's really there's always been quite a thriving or you know certainly over the past decade been really quite a thriving cycling research scene which has been exciting and interdisciplinary which has always been kind of interesting because you know in a sense being a country that is not that good at cycling but actually has quite a lot of really interesting cycling research. That's incredible I mean my, I guess one of my first questions is so what's the cover photo for the newer plan? It's actually a bit boring it's not a photo at all it's, oh, okay. uh, which I think is partly expressive of the fact that you know it's actually quite hard to um, agree I'm just actually and hopefully that doesn't make too loud a clicking noise in the background but I'm just 
looking for it so that I can yes basically it's just a kind of green arrow it's very it's not oh, it's not okay. a photo at all so I guess they were a little bit nervous about settling on a photo for the cover but there's a lot of really good um, pictures and diagrams therein which give you quite a wide spectrum because one of the things that I think is important is providing that diversity of imagery and I think that's something that in London Transport for London has got quite good at and the idea that you know you do not when you're putting images of a new bike route out to consultation you know using lots and lots of images of this guy in lycra on a racing bike is really you know not it doesn't give the right message does it and it doesn't suggest that this is something for everyone and you know now they're very good and increasingly authorities are very good at showing a range of types of cyclists and showing you know illustrating that okay you know if we are building quality infrastructure we do expect to see children we do expect to see older people we expect you know this is more what it will look like well, I think, and the other thing that you said that I, it's so obvious, but I, even in my communication strategy, kind of watching stuff that we are looking at cycling as we want it to be, not as it is. And I, that line, it's so interesting because everywhere I look, and even with a lot of bike brands and stuff, it still is a lot of men and maybe they're adding different ethnicities into the mix or whatever. And it is all about Lycra. Even when I have conversations with people generally, they're like, well, what kit do you wear? I'm like, I don't even know what a kit is. <laughs> right? Because I, and I do, you know, daily riding in the city, but I also do occasional, I mean, I do weekend longer rides and I do wear a pair of Lycra bike shorts when I do that, but it's just really interesting. But back to that, like cycling as it is and cycling is where we want it to be. I think in climate change, that's always, you know, it's always like just visualize and dream and anticipate and intend for what it will be. I think that's really important. And one of the things that I think, if it, you know, when, when we're thinking about, you know, quite radical transformative policies that are going to, you know, make it a little bit harder to use a car, that are going to reallocate space from cars to walking and cycling, you know, it is really important to communicate an image of this positive change and the things that people will gain, not just it's going to be a little bit harder for you to park your car, but, you know, just also think about the benefits, think about the transformation, think about the, the additional possibilities as well, I think. Well, it's interesting. One of the things that I keep realizing, and you probably, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the people in the U.S. are like, well, I'm going to Europe. It's going to be so great, you know, da, da, da. And they take all these pictures and the pictures they're taking are of the wonderful streets that are probably closed or have very little traffic and people walking and biking and all this stuff. And I'm always thinking, okay, then you come home and you park your three, I mean, literally in the U.S., they've got two and three huge cars parked on the street. And then they wonder why they have to keep going to Europe or the UK, you know, to do this. And I, I am fascinated by that. I know, I know. And there is a sense of, you know, the, we have this here as well, because, you know, people from the UK visiting countries like the Netherlands, where things, you know, or, or you know, historic centres of Spanish um, cities, where often they're pedestrianised and they're really, you know, quite, quite nice in terms of low amounts of motor traffic. And then, yeah, it's easy to come back and just sort of, OK, that was lovely, but that was over there. We even see it within London in terms of London boroughs that people will say, well, you know, that's Hackney, you know, in, in, in our London borough, that's not possible. And it's, you know... <laughs> even if it's a borough like five miles down the road. So it is often, I think it's hard for people to imagine, um, to imagine change and change often seems quite 
scary and threatening because very often we do experience change being things getting worse so it is I do think having that narrative and having being able to also you know test out things being different and trial things and experiment I think is also important so that people can see whether the world ends or whether actually things get better and some things are a bit harder but actually it balances you know you you, you have more benefits than disbenefits. I love that whether the world is going to end if things change. I, one of the things that I'm wondering as a communications person and it also it kind of goes to the culture and we can get into this more later, but I'm kind of wondering the conversion stories. So if, if say there's a, a person who lives in a, a London borough that's not used to this, right? And they go, oh no, they do that in Hackney, et cetera. Have you, and this maybe deeply, you can tell me about your research, conversion stories. Like what if this guy who only drove or only whatever, what, did, what took, did he go on a little e-bike ride in Hackney one day? and then realize. Do you have any kind of interesting stories about that? I mean, we've. It is, it is an area that I would certainly like to do more research into because I think those narratives uh, are really important of how people experience change and how people, you know, and there are definitely quite a lot of examples that I've come across more anecdotally about people, you know, and I think it's quite in those experiences that people have told me about. I think having, you know, people who are your peers or people who you, you know, whose, whose experiences, whose, whose arguments you trust or people who you think could be like you which I think is is really important people need to sort of see and hear from people who they think are like themselves not you know the traditional cyclist who maybe they don't identify with but people who they can imagine as being as doing things that they might do themselves and I see I remember actually I had a student who was studying you know attitudes and barriers to cycling among the black community in Camden in North London and I there's something she said something that came out of her study really stuck in my head and it was a woman sort of saying you, you know who'd never considered cycling but then when pushed to think about well what might encourage her to cycle or who's you know what what kind of stories might encourage her to cycle she sort of said well you know if the past to cycled to church, you know, to give a sermon, then I would think about it. And, you know, so those role models, you know, may be different for different groups and different people and so on. But I think a message about thinking about, you know, different different places, different communities, different examples. Um, and I, I certainly know of stories from London that are more slightly more general around the impact that getting a group of counsellors to go on a bike ride is sometimes made. So inviting them to come and sort of see and to experience what it's like. And it's very easy for people to see, you know, before you experience yourself and I have a sort of anecdote story for that as well it would just you know being sat in the car with my mum she was driving around Lancashire where my, my family live and I remember pointing because I'm, I'm a very boring passenger I kind of chunked her and I'm like oh look at that bike lane that's awful and my mum sort of said what's wrong with it and I said well mum would you cycle in that bike lane she said, of course of course I wouldn't cycle in that bike lane it's kind of like well that's that's the problem with it then is that you wouldn't cycle in it so I think when people sort of actually think about or try and do cycling or walking in an environment you know discover some of those issues I think that could be helpful as well so potentially some of those events with decision makers I think have been quite influential. Thank you you walked right into my trap which is I think that you know one of my things is this idea of climate influence and I always refer to Anne Hidalgo in Paris she's out there riding a bike she's got this political will and the other thing from my perspective is that she gets a lot of really positive buzz internationally just for being kind of the hip, cool mayor. How can we be leveraging that? You know, And it also kind of goes back right now to those stories about trying to get people to get their COVID vaccinations, right? And who is the person that's going to influence them? I think there was a story from Israel about rabbis who helped, you know, once the rabbis were convinced, then their communities were like, oh, okay, I'm in. So you did walk into my trap. But I think that the whole idea of climate influence and getting, you know, I even look at cities like Seattle, getting 
the mayor, you know, and whoever is mayor, we've got, uh, we're in the middle of an election period, getting the mayor to ride a bike. And again, I guess when I say bike, it could be either, but I think now and now more and more people really think it's accessible if we're talking about e-bikes. But when I say bike, I just mean whatever. But getting people to try a bike, to ride a short trip in their actual city, they'll vote different. <laughs> you know, the power in that is incredible. So I'm really, that's really what I focus on is climate influence and how really to get decision makers to ride a bike in their city for like a day, maybe an hour. And then it really changes stuff. I think there's a ton of potential there. Yeah. And I think also the uh, the sort of the influence of mayors and city leaders internationally. I mean, some of those, the sort of knowledge sharing and the learning. And sometimes um, for me, some of the things that inspire me most are not, you know, the traditional high performers in terms of walking and cycling and so on. But yeah, exactly like Anna Hidalgo um, in Paris, which has not traditionally been bike friendly or some Latin American cities where, again, traditionally not very high levels of cycling, hostile environments where, you know, they've made that substantial change. And OK, it doesn't quite look like Copenhagen. And yet the, the change they've made is inspiring. Yeah. And it's like immediately apparent that the citizens are like, oh, this is kind of fun or I like this. So what the resistance and then you get whoever the resistance and I like, you know, talking about it as a hostile environment because it really can be. And then it's just like, OK, who are the three people we need to give this experience to who will, could potentially make a change? And maybe one is the mayor. I love this quote. I wanted to talk about, you know, dig into research that you did on why culture matters for transport policy. And you did this research with Katrina Youngnickel. Did I pronounce that right? Yes. Um, the quote just from the kind of the, the abstract was this, our research highlights the embedding of transport in local as well as national cultures and the associated need for policymakers to take culture seriously in considering how to shift transport practices. So, and I guess this is more of the same. I don't know if you're thinking, what do you think has made the difference and how did the culture you study at least start to roll in that direction? This was our cycling culture study where we were looking at sort of cycling um, cultures, policies, experiences and so on in four English contexts where cycling levels were relatively high, um, you know, in a, in a wider context where, where they're really pretty low. And one of the things that we did, I mean, slightly negatively find was that there were still a lot of barriers. There were still a lot of problems, even in those contexts. And one of the things that was kind of protective in those context when you know people wouldn't say oh England is a cycling country in the same way they would the Netherlands is a cycling country or Denmark is a cycling country so people didn't have that kind of national level culture thing to to you know that they could hold on to in the same way you could in the Netherlands say so one of the things that they held on to was this kind of local distinctiveness narrative which you know in Cambridge especially for instance where Cambridge is somewhere that has you know well one in three people cycle to work it's very um, you know it's a very distinctive place within England and you visit it and I visited it quite early on in doing research and cycling and I was kind of like wow this is this is incredible I hadn't been to the Netherlands at uh, that point and I yeah it was, it was it was really interesting and somewhere like Hackney um, was different again or Hackney or Bristol um, a couple of other places in the study because those are places where cycling has increased relatively recently and yet there was also a narrative about it being somehow linked to a specific you know specific characteristics of Hackney or of Bristol in terms of being sort of you know a bit um, green alternative you know and so on so which is interesting but then again you have to remember the kind of exclusions that those kind of narratives come with and the way in which they are you know they attract some people and not others so it's not unproblematic on the other hand um, Hull which was um, our fourth place that we studied so Hull has a long tradition of cycling as well but it, it was in it was in decline when we were studying it it's slightly sad because it was seen as something from the past something of Hull's 
past and I remember one interview saying to me you know in the past you know people would cycle but now you know everyone has a car the wife has a car the kids have a car there's cars everywhere and so the narrative has sort of had cycling as part of Hull's past really which um which is something that yeah potentially it's a resource that you could use to turn around because also people did see Hull as linked to a culture of cycling but it was narrated differently so I think I guess part of the point is that a lot of places you do have those kind of resources that you can draw on and you can say well you know cycling can be is part of our culture here linked you know and there's these distinctive aspects to it and you know it could be seen in a range of different ways but I guess also you know it is something that is a little bit defensive because you are still saying within this wider context where people don't cycle this is our little part of cycling heaven or you know cycling futures. I really love your distinction of is London a cycling city but or the local distinctiveness the local distinctiveness that what did you call it a factor or local distinctiveness talking about it that way is really interesting because I also I haven't been to London in years and whatever I'm very involved in kind of music and the plant-based based and whatever and all I know is when my music friends go they go to Hackney right or I really love bands from Bristol and I think that just making these broad statements and just like pairing this local distinctiveness is interesting because then you can look at it and go, I think you can tell me as a researcher, you could look at it and go, okay, is there a really resistant neighborhood right next to Hackney, right? That we, that could sort of, you can edge into this or whatever. That's something that strikes me, but I love like not just doing this blanket thing, like, you know, London is in a cycling city or just diving into like specific areas and then maybe leveraging that influentially. Yes. I mean, it's also, I, I mean, I suppose there is also that tension between, you know, if you're thinking that there's some areas that are, then that implies that some, there are some areas that aren't. And I guess important to think about what we need to do to diversify it, to make it accessible to everyone. So for instance, if people need a standard traditional two-wheeled bike, then, you know, for many people, you know, that's not that large an amount of money but if you need a cargo bike to carry kids or an adapted cycle an, an e-bike then that you're talking about really quite a different cost that can be prohibitive for a lot of people so that they may not feel included yeah thank you um so interesting so with regard to bikes for climate which is the kind of the tag that i started and i curate i'm just i tend to argue that we need more of those leaders like Anne Hidalgo, who's boldly cycling and doing that in your research or have you done anything about kind of the political or those counselors or people being involved in in that and, and kind of being more bold and making decisions about transportation? I mean, we've done some sort of on, on the flip side, we did um, some research looking at sort of barriers to investing in cycling. So what were the barriers that were local practitioners, local policymakers and so on felt in terms of cycling being invested in or often not being invested in? And one of the top barriers, I mean, funding was obviously very important and funding is still something that authorities here, you know, really um, active travel funding is still far too scarce, but also local political will was really important because, you know, you don't necessarily need a lot of money. Um, some things, you know, particularly if you're doing something on a temporary trial basis, you can maybe use light segregation if you're building a, a cycle route, you know, sort of temp temporary rubber blocks, curbs and so on. So, you know, you don't necessarily need to spend a lot of money. But if you didn't have the political will to reallocate road space, whether it's creating protected cycle lanes or it's creating a safe crossing for pedestrians, you know, that could just lock everything. So having, yeah, having that local political support. And, you know, unfortunately, that does make a lot of things quite vulnerable because, you know, sometimes that 
key person would move on and then the project that they'd been supporting the project that they'd been spending their evenings working on would just sort of fall away so I think absolutely crucial and having someone particularly when as well you've there's a lot of um, really uh, talented transport planners and engineers but sort of the traditions of transport planning modeling and engineering are often not that supportive and you know it's it's for to be that local political leader who pushes and who doesn't accept oh no it's not safe why is it not safe because we've always done it the other way and we don't you know to actually not just not accept excuses and to really push for things to be done differently and better even if that isn't the way we've traditionally done things and that's kind of hard and often you know if you're talking about say portfolio holders so councillors in in this country who would have the transport portfolio they're not necessarily experts in transport why why you know why would they be and they need I think you know getting them to understand why building yeah, transformation active travel is important and what it means and not to be you know sidetracked by reasons why you can't do it is really important does your research I mean, how does what you're doing because what you're doing is so in-depth and you've got you know what's happening and, and your findings are all really helpful i think how does what you're doing finally reach the right person are there obstruction how do you finally reach the person who's the decision maker and who is that decision maker it's not necessarily the mayor right it's the person whispering into the mayor's ear so can you tell me a little bit about that? I mean, it's often I'm not necessarily the person communicating research directly. So potentially it's people in local areas who would hear about the research, my research or the people's research and would then potentially translate it to decision makers. So sometimes, you know, it might be local officers who might hear about research findings and who might sort of summarise and share the results of those findings. I mean, I think it does vary in different local areas. I mean, I think, you know, sometimes it is the leader of a council, the mayor, whatever, who pushes through, you know, building higher quality cycle tracks. They're really personally committed to it they believe in it and there so there's an example in Leicester where the, you know they basically removed the mayor was, was strongly behind reallocating carriageway space on a ring road towards protected cycle tracks and you know despite the fact that you know there, there were arguments that well you can't possibly take a lane away from motor traffic you know the sky will fall in and you know nevertheless he persevered with it and they've, they've built quite a lot of temporary COVID era um, cycle tracks now by reallocating space and connecting say hospitals the hospital with residential areas so that people could cycle um, to work. So sometimes it is a mayor, sometimes, uh, but other times there's been other examples where it's, for instance, it might be somebody who is the transport portfolio holder, they're the person with that brief. And, you know, sometimes you still ca- you can't have a hostile mayor or, or, or council leader or whatever, you know, that, but it's somebody who steps back and who gives that person their trust and who lets them run with it and who's willing to support them. So I think, yeah, I think it just varies. And I think for me, communicating, I, I mean, I do communicate my research directly quite a lot as well but I think often it is people talking about research my research other people's research and sort of communicating and sharing findings you know through networks and so on but I've certainly done talks on research to local authority officers to to um, politicians and policymakers and so on as well so I think yeah I think it's important for researchers to get that out directly but I think a lot of sharing of knowledge you know sort of probably happens without the original researcher as well. Yeah, so it's important. I mean, that kind of makes me think that it is important, even though on Twitter, we feel like we're just sort of, you know, tweeting out to the wilderness. One of the things I like to do is just say, you know, I use that tag, hashtag bike Twitter, and I go, hey, you know, new research from Rachel or whatever. Like I, and also I feel like, and we can talk about this, I don't know what your feelings are, but it just seems like there's so much more research happening UK, EU, and I don't know why it's not happening here or it isn't a priority or whatever, but it's just like I keep finding that I'm highlighting what's going on in the EU and what's going on in the UK as any hope, right, of supplying resources 
or generating some buzz with U.S. decision makers, including like we have um, sustainability directors that are in each city or somebody who might be with a Bloomberg program on American cities. It's really about climate. I mean, I think I think being able to share research on social media, I mean, yeah, I use Twitter quite a bit as well to sort of share not just my own research, but other people's research as well. And I think it particularly particularly helps where we when research is open access so that people can, you know, anybody can read it as well. I mean, that's, you know, the academic publishing model. Is, there's a lot of problems with it um, making and, you know, researchers don't or, or always have the funds to make research open access. But ideally, it, it would be so that people can read. Yeah, can go read the research although also you know it's not people not everyone is going to read a full academic article so I think it's also important I think Twitter threads can be quite helpful as well I sometimes um, do that for an article like potentially yeah 10 10 tweets strung together can be quite useful I firmly believe that half the time I tell people uh, you know who I might be advising I'm like listen share it as a Twitter thread because then that in a way if you want to that itself could just be pasted in and be a LinkedIn article right like figure out ways I mean you repeat these things over and over again right and you have all these abstracts and you're like, I don't want to do this again, you know, just, but I think Twitter threads are amazing, even for sorting your thinking in terms of writing and stuff. I am cynical about social media broadly, but I feel like Twitter and potentially LinkedIn, because there are researchers in transportation and cycling advocates who are hungry for stuff that they can just funnel through to their, their leaders and their council people and their mayors. Yeah, I think it's powerful. And I'm really glad that you're on there. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's not always 100% fun, but I think it is. No, I, I think it's important to be there and to be sharing stuff and particularly, you know, potentially amplifying other other researchers whose work isn't well enough known and who's, who are doing some really great stuff. So. Yeah, it's funny just to, I mean, I it feels like sometimes academics who are doing a pretty good job on Twitter might be a little bit harder to find. Like the fact that you do it is pretty big deal, you know, and the, the fact that you do it pretty well. And it's like, how can that be right trained into academia so that professors and the researchers coming up are no to leverage that? Because I love to be able to really get Twitter rallied around like, you know, new research or something that could help. And so we need more people like you to actually be on Twitter telling us about it. So one of the things that we read about a little bit in London that I'm not super clear about is just this idea of the low traffic neighborhood. And I believe you've done some significant work on that. Can you tell me about that? And I guess kind of interestingly as a way to bridge it, because I will, sorry, I'm backing up on the question, but I was on a kind of a social media call with a, a guy who was a council person kind of in, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he said, he's finding that his peers don't respond to, we need safe streets, da, 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 da. They respond to complete networks. And it makes me think that low traffic neighborhoods is a way to bring in this. So tell me a little bit of a lot about low traffic neighborhoods. Sure. I mean, there's lots of debates here about what terms to use and so on. And one of the one one argument that people make is that like, the, the problem with that term is that it's negative and it highlights what you don't have as opposed to what you do have anyway. These are kind of ongoing discussions. And I guess when you've got potentially controversial policies, there probably isn't an ideal term to be used to describe them. But basically, I mean, I guess the, the interesting thing for me about low traffic neighborhoods is that it is a sort of area level thing. So it's not just about an individual slow street or complete street or whatever. The, the focus is on a neighbourhood and on trying to reduce, substantially remove through motor traffic from that neighbourhood using techniques that I think, you know, like um, very often modal filters, which restrict motor vehicles from going through, sometimes like diverters as well. So you can turn left in a motor vehicle or right in a motor vehicle, but you can't go straight on. Quite a lot of examples of there from some of the greenways, I think, in North America where they use those kind of things. But yeah, the idea that you get a neighbourhood where you can access any 
property within the neighbourhood by car, but you can't just cut through it to somewhere else. And part of the problem that we've been having in London and many other UK cities is that with the rise of sat-nav, the rise of home deliveries and so on, that a lot of those neighbourhood streets have got very, very busy with motor traffic and people, you know, find intimidating walking or cycling in those neighbourhoods. So that's the idea behind it. There's a number of studies that we've now been able to do looking at some of the impacts in London, partly because during 2020, a lot of these things were put in as temporary, you know, um, emergency measures effectively during COVID. And I have to say London, you know, didn't really do as well in terms of cycle tracks as say Paris did or Bogota did as temporary COVID interventions. But London did put in quite a few of these low traffic neighbourhoods. So we've been able to look at some of those impacts. Also, longer term schemes that have gone in in Walsham Forest. So as part of a a mayoral programme called Mini Hollands, Walsham Forest have put in some of these kind of schemes between 2015, from 2015, 2016 onwards. They weren't called low traffic neighbourhoods then. They were called village schemes initially. And then, you know, things are called different names. Livable neighbourhoods is another popular term. And so, yeah, we've looked at their impacts and it seems, you know, I mean, it's still something's still a little provisional because, you know, at the moment, this is just London that we've looked at. And also, you know, some of these things haven't been in that long. But we're finding big increases in walking, particularly. We're finding reduction in car ownership and use. We're finding a reduction in uh, street crime, which is interesting. And uh, we're finding a reduction in road injuries as well, particularly, it seems, for pedestrians. So, you know, it seems like there's a range of, you know, positive impacts that we've been able to measure. It's so exciting, again, to just even have the research. But I feel like uh, we, even during COVID here in Seattle, had, I think it's called Stay Healthy Streets. And even that was, it's just really interesting. It gives drivers, I think, driving through the neighborhood more of a perspective that maybe they'll take with them elsewhere, but also is an immediate demonstration of, oh yeah, this is kind of like that thing that I liked when I went on that trip to Europe, (laughs) you know? But part of the low traffic neighborhoods idea, you mentioned it with regard to deliveries, you know, how much the e-commerce and the deliveries has just taken over every city street. And I do some kind of work on that with a colleague up in Vancouver, BC. And that idea of cycle logistics, I'm always thinking, what will a city or transportation system put budget toward? I'm cynical in a way. I think they're like, well, people can just deal, you know? They can, you know, put high visibility stuff on and walk carefully on the sidewalks. They'll just have to deal with cars. But it seems to me that potentially, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, dialing into psycho logistics or delivering by e-cargo, bike and trailer, et cetera, is something that has commerce attached to it, right? And money and saving like that may get kind of decision makers heads thinking about it faster than I believe what they think about when you talk about getting more people to ride bikes and walk safely is just sort of Saturday afternoon walking around. It's like they don't visualize it as the everyday thing in the city. So I guess, yeah, I'm interested in last mile delivery and what you think will make people pay more attention to this and the budget involved in that and just sort of anything on that conversation. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is a really interesting area. I've been recently doing a bit of work with my colleague, Cecilia Velingieri and Irene Areta, with a company called Pedal Me as well, looking at shifting deliveries from van to cargo bike and the, you know, the potential efficiency um, and environmental impacts of that. And I think this has been quite a neglected area, but there's a lot of scope for many of these, you know, really quite substantial system change. So I think it's one of these things that needs a push. It's not necessarily, the current system is inefficient, but it's not necessarily going to change by itself. And certainly as a customer, customer 
customers ordering items don't have a choice, even if that would make a difference, which arguably, you know, that's not where you where you would start to make a difference. But yeah, it's kind of a system that is out of people's hands. And we have started to see some interesting things happening in London, particularly, I think, around this as well. So City of London, which is like the square mile, is starting to set up these delivery hubs, which are the idea is the vans come in and they drop off and then you have sort of e-cargo bikes or it might be a person with a trolley or it might be potentially a small electric vehicle would then take on and deliver those things. So we are seeing sort of more of this. And I think, yeah, being able to incentivize this and disincentivize van use and being able to support businesses to make a change is really important. But there are a lot of benefits. And I think it also goes together with the infrastructure potentially, so that if you have infrastructure that makes it easier to cycle, makes cycling the quicker, the you know, the better alternative to driving a van, then, you know, that will also help. And we found that potentially when we looked at some of these routes in London for vans versus cargo bikes, you could see examples of where, you know, because a street had been modally filtered and, you know, you couldn't drive down that street, but you could cycle through it, then that may, you know, help to make that cargo bike delivery even more efficient. Of course, it doesn't mean you have to think about the design. So one problem we traditionally have here is that bollards are put too close together and you can't get a bike trailer through the bollard. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's possibly yeah, a problem that you, you may experience too. But yeah, just, um, yeah, the planning aspect and the thinking of that those slightly wider cycles rather than just thinking about somebody on a two-wheeled bike without a load. Well, I mean, kind of the where you start, though, it's interesting because it's like we are starting to see infrastructure and decisions like this being made around just regular people cycling. But it does seem to me that there gets to be a little bit more enthusiasm and interest once you dig. It's like, which is first, the chicken or the egg? It's like, should we also then be really pushing last mile delivery and psychologistics in these hubs? Because ultimately it will help the average person be able to cycle. You know what I mean? I, I'm trying to figure out what works faster, you know, pushing the business button and going, you're losing money, you're being so inefficient, figure this out. And then having the infrastructure that's developed for that be super helpful for people because in my very cynical mind, getting more people cycling safely doesn't seem to be quickly motivating. Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the context. It depends. I mean, different things. That, I mean, one of the things that I think potentially we 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 got confused about here was around the motivation of health in relation to cycling. And I don't think that health is necessarily, uh, you know, the motivator that is important for individuals. But if for, for some policymakers thinking about population health and thinking about the scope that improving the health of population could be quite important. So I mean, I guess it's yeah, different different messages and different motivators potentially. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, like individual don't think on a day-to-day basis about kind of the health but the, the money kind of the and the community and looking at public health broadly by policymakers that I, that can get I'm, I'm constantly looking for what's sexier for the decision makers right what's going to be more urgent for the decision makers it's so interesting and then the other thing I was kind of interested in just more you'd mentioned on your website that you're this active travel academy um, tell us a little bit about that and, and what you're doing with that and what's been successful and kind of exciting. Yeah, so this is uh, this is quite exciting for me because we got funding from the Quintin Hogg Trust, uh, which is the University of Westminster's uh, linked charity to set up the Active Travel Academy and basically be a research knowledge exchange teaching hub focused around active travel. So very exciting to be working with some great colleagues. We've got a lot of brilliant PhD students who are doing some amazing projects. So for instance, we've got a PhD student who's studying the impact of school streets in London, looking at the impact, you know, both on travel 
travel to school, but also looking at how space is used, which is really, really interesting. So yeah, lots of lots of great projects. We also have a lot of events and, you know, at the moment, obviously events are uh, largely virtual. So it's, yeah, that gives an opportunity to reach a wider audience potentially. And my colleague, Tom Cohen, uh, he's part of the Active Travel Academy, organises with, with other colleagues walking at tea time and cycling at tea time, which are, yeah, or meal time even. It's not always tea time, but yeah, basically organises these these great events. And yeah, of course, you, we can share and then make that material available afterwards. We also work with the journalist, Laura Laker. We've worked with her and she's led the development of these road collision reporting guidelines, which is around trying to encourage news reporting to report better on particularly vulnerable road user fatalities, collisions involving pedestrians and cyclists and so on, where, you know, potentially um, the way that collisions are reported can, you know, lead to people sort of, you know, blaming the victim and so on. So there's a whole range of stuff we're involved in, a range of different research projects. One of our interests is around evaluating the impact of some of these schemes that are going in. So we've got uh, ongoing work around that. So yeah, lots of lots of stuff. And it's just really great to be to be working with some some yeah brilliant colleagues, brilliant students, and just be able to amplify some of the stuff that they're leading, like Acilia and Irina's work on cargo bikes, which is just fantastic. So Oh my gosh, that is so, that is incredibly exciting. I mean, the two things from my perspective, the school street stuff, right? And I, I'm not a parent, but I live in a neighborhood that's just like, right? It becomes minivans all the way around the school for like a mile. And that, you know, that is last mile delivery, right? So it, it is almost, right, of people and products. So I, I also think that the psychologistics kind of getting more into e-cargo bikes and kind of studying that would then be really easy to like apply and put pressure on people with regard to school drop-off. I think that's really interesting. And the other thing that you said that is super great is Laura Lakers, like helping the media figure out and get better trained, it sounds like, to use better words and to phrase things based on, you know, the crash or the rider or the, that's really, really interesting. So can you tell me anything more about the, what Laura Laker's up to? Yeah, so the guidelines um, were so it's been it's been something in progress over a few months, and we recently um, released the final version. I say final, but you know this is something that is potentially something that will develop over time as well. But yeah, avoiding the word accident we see as really important in line with like guidance from World Health Organization, British Medical Association, a whole range of um, organisations, the Met Police in London avoid using it now. So yeah, really uh, accident as just you know it kind of implies something unavoidable that's you know just just happens and really important to avoid that kind of language and we we also you know talked about the fact that you know often very often when collisions are talked about you know it's the car is described as being the actor oh yeah you know hit by a car a car was speeding a car was doing this and it's actually yeah when it's actually a driver doing it and it's interesting one interesting thing is when you see when there's an incident involving a person on a bike suddenly it tends to change and if something happens the cyclist did this rather than the bicycle or the cycle did this and I so I think in a sense perhaps you have a model in terms of how cycling you know how things involving a cyclist are reported but very often when something involving a car driver is reported it is described as if the car did something and yet obviously these you know these cars are not generally (laughs) autonomous cars there is you know there is a driver so so yeah these kind of things and one of the things that influenced us in developing these was work by um, researchers including Tara Goddard and Kelsey Ralph who've done some really great stuff around the reporting yeah the, the way in which um, it, it's very it's similar in in North America as well it's actually similar in 
other European countries, as far as I can tell, some of these patterns. And yeah, it doesn't help. Uh, yeah, it, it doesn't help people actually think about the causes of crashes and collisions and how you know we might be able to stop these deaths and serious injuries. I think it's very often kind of yeah, it, it, the accidents that just happen, but that's not the case. You know, we can stop this happening. I love that. And I'm going to definitely look that up and I might pull it out and add, add that link, especially um, in the show notes. But it actually reminds me, there's a kind of an initiative or a program out of Columbia Journalism School here called Covering Climate Now. It's one of those things, right? It's a resource in education. I think it's really geared toward educating journalists, you know, to change. But I attend a lot of their webinars and I'm just like, this is a really interesting information for communications pros because I feel like even communications pros, professionals rather, can start to, if they change the way they're wording, then maybe if a journalist is reading more of their work, they'll just sort of take the hint. You know what I mean? I think it's a whole process. So that covering climate now is really interesting. Did you have anything else to add on that? Yeah, no, I mean, that sounds that sounds a great resource. And I think, yeah, the language of these things really matters. And also, that's a good point that it's not just I often one of one point that was made to us was that journalists sometimes are basically um, using the same language that is used in police reports, police press releases, and so on. So it's important also to ensure that that changes so yeah i mean it's a whole i mean it is it is something that's more that's more widespread generally through society so i guess you have to have different strategies but yeah to ensure that we do represent things that happen you know the crashes that happen collisions that happen more accurately and to try and you know get more of a constructive debate happening about what we do about road injury risk yeah well uh thank you i one last question is just sort of are you are you seeing the transportation kind of these changes in transportation connected well enough to climate action in your general sphere or do you feel kind of like you're doing your thing and climate action is over here and they don't really mesh as well in, in the kind of public conversation. I mean, we, we do see, we have seen a spate of authorities here in the UK sort of announce, acknowledge the climate emergency, which is, has been quite quite a positive development, but then that doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with, for instance, reviewing major road schemes um, and, you know, actually that translating into practice. Sometimes it does, you know, we just, I just saw recently that, that in Wales, they, um, they've launched a review of plans for major road schemes, and they're actually going to look at that in, in the light of the climate emergency. So, you know, that should be feeding through into policy. But, but very often it is kind of that the climate emergency is something over there and the day-to-day -day kind of road, you know, the, the way that things work on the road, transport policy doesn't necessarily um, change. And I think, you know, I think sometimes it's kind of hard for people to connect the two and to sort of see, you know, that either the climate emergency is something sort of remote or far off or frightening that we can't do something about rather than that there are steps that we can take that can make a difference. Obviously, you know, it's not whatever, say, London or wherever it does is only one small thing but you know it's all important so and I think one of the things that has been quite positive here as well has been sort of citizens assemblies on climate and some of these are focused specifically on transport and actually getting you know representative group of citizens together to talk about the problems talk about the solutions talk about the compromises that need to be made I mean that is also quite exciting and it's a way of hopefully if it's done well getting people to think about you know the scale of the change but also what could be done and what the co-benefits might be yeah co-benefits that's like the word of the day for like everything that a lot of us are involved in you know it's just like they're all connected people um well thank you so much i really enjoyed this conversation and um i'm looking forward to more of your research and your twitter sharing and um just really glad that you're up to this in london because we we need it in the us we need what you're up to in order to 
do anything here. So thank you so much for your time. Um, and yeah, and have a great rest of your week and summer and we will be in touch and I'll see you on Twitter.